This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the manly warthog man cave in the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country. Right now, it's hotter than blazes out there, and we'll talk about that at the weather at the bottom of the hour. And it uh, looks like uh, 4th of July is going to be July, and uh, it can be rainy and thundery and hot and all of the above. So we'll be covering that as well today. Of course, uh, the Manly Warthog Command Center is inside the Melton Law Studio, one of our great sponsors. Melton Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators, a full-service legal outfit. And we're protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention with Randy Elrad and John Pastore. Protect yourself locally. I advise that. You know I'm never wrong. And, of course, we got our great sponsors, R&R Constructions, one on-the-spot cleaners. Patronize these people. Uh, uh, style cuts, if you can get your ears set out, as my father used to say when he sent me down to get a haircut. It was either get your ears set out or get pleased up. He didn't see any long hair in the picture, having been a combat veteran. So he was a military top dude. And a lot of fathers should have been that way, I think, in raising us little hellions. But um, we got a great show for you today. We had a great show yesterday uh, when we talked with uh, Representative Chuck Clemens about DeSantis signing the bill to transfer the control of GRU out of the hands of the incompetent Gainesville City Commission. Um, today, we have uh, a guest who's been on the show before. Actually, he's a personal friend. But above that, just a really bright guy, a retired uh, neurosurgeon, and has not stopped thinking, of course. Uh, people with active minds don't stop thinking just because they may have changed their occupation or what they're going to focus on. And uh, in the world of medicine, Steve's done hundreds and hundreds of operations. I'll call him Steve because he's a good friend, a family member, really, basically. And uh I asked him if he wanted to come on the show and talk about anything. And I plan on having Steve maybe come on once a month because he's working on a lot of projects. And the one today, really, as we were talking with our production uh, crew the moment before we went on the air, is all about artificial intelligence. And I think with his, Steve's interest, how it is influencing or is being used or whatever in medicine, of which I don't know a darn thing. And so I'm all ears. I'm ready to learn about this. Artificial intelligence, I'm sure, is a mixed bag, a two-headed coin, as we say. It can be used for good things and misused. Uh, it's sort of like the Internet. Uh, the Internet has been, I think, uh, on, on one hand, the worst hoax perpetrated on mankind. And on the other hand, uh, it's enabled us to all communicate worldwide at the speed of light. Uh, that's the Internet speed, of course. So, uh, Steve, welcome to the show. I'm all ears on what you're going to be talking about. And I'm just going to have to follow your narrative because I don't know a darn thing. 
Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Ward. Th- thank you for that excellent introduction. I, I really appreciate it. I, I hope I deserve it. Um, it was extemporaneous, Steve. <laughs> well, th- thank you very much. That makes it all the more genuine. Uh, yes, when, when we talked about the potential topics, uh, AI and medicine leapt to the surface. It seems to me that it's an obvious topic of interest, and it's going to affect everybody whoever sees a doctor going forwards. So I'd like to bring everybody up to speed, if possible, on the transformative and disruptive aspects of AI in general, and specifically on AI and medicine. You have got I, the floor, and I'm listening, and so are the students, so far away. Okay, well, please feel free to interrupt and ask questions at any time here, because I probably do better with presentations if they involve a back and forth like that. Okay, you got uh, it. <clears throat> so uh, AIs will be as disruptive as the steam engine or as the internet. Alan Turing was asked, how will we know when computers become conscious? And he said, well, that day will come when you can have a conversation with a computer and you can't tell whether it's a computer or a human being. And back as he described his famous Turing test, it involves using a teletype. So you could teletype questions into the teletype and get them back. And if you couldn't tell whether you were talking to a human being or a computer, then according to Alan Turing, that computer was conscious. It was who was a, Alan Turing for the students? He, he, he was a, uh, a famous uh, pioneer in the, the field of computation and computers. Uh, he, he's one of the fathers of computer science. Uh, virtually all, all computers we work with today uh, other than analog computers are what we would call Turing machines, which uh, perform in a way that he, he described. And uh, just as a quick tangent, according to him, uh, any computer that meets those criteria can perform the same calculations. It's just going to take some of them longer than others. So and when was but, he saying all this pioneer information? Oh, this, this was back in, in the fifties. Okay. Uh, so, so anyway, the computers now have exceeded the Turing test because not only can we not tell if we're talking to a human or a computer through a teletype, the computer can actually generate a persona or an avatar that on your computer screen is indistinguishable from a person. So we've really achieved a, an incredible milestone that, uh, a lot of people just didn't notice because it just seemed par for the course for how technology is, is progressing. So why is this dangerous or, or disruptive? And why is this beneficial? Uh, our AIs now really can process information much faster than human beings and in ways that are opaque to human beings. One of the core technologies underlying the AIs today is neural networks. Now, our, our brain is made up of neurons. There are lots of little tiny cells that talk to each other by throwing chemicals at each other, and they surround themselves with electrical fields that flash and change and, and move up and down all the time. They're kind of a combination of what we would call an analog and a digital computer. Uh, the what 
neurons are really good at doing is recognizing patterns and optimizing things. So back again in the uh, decades uh, leading up to the end of the last century, information scientists tried modeling neurons and connecting them together. And they found that even with extremely simple models and even just a few of these elements, uh, they could create what are called neural networks that could optimize things, recognize things, predict things. And they lie at the core of modern AI. And in the course of AI, early on, there were attempts at what was called hard AI. And that was an attempt to make basically a flow chart for every possibility. So the computer was given instructions that if you observe this, then you do that. And so uh, you might have had a system that would be very much like the phone trees that we have now, where they say, if you want to talk to John Brown, press one. If you want to talk to Joan uh, Smith, then press two. And, but the entire flow of, of the algorithms behind hard AI was based on simple binary choices uh, that uh, would lead through this circuitous path to, to uh, an endpoint of some kind. The, the modern AIs that involve these neural networks uh, do not rely on that type of technology. Instead, they work much more like a, a, a human brain would. Things are a lot fuzzier. Interesting how uh, the AI that is tracking my hands here to disc discriminate me from the background can get fuzzy as I come close here. Mm -hmm. uh, but the uh, they get a lot fuzzier, and, and, and that opens up additional possibilities. They're not as locked in to the uh, predictions that otherwise would have been generated. That also means they are unpredictable, just like a human can be unpredictable. And if you go online to play with any of the conversational AIs that are available today, like Bard at, at Google or uh, ChatGPT, uh, you will find that many times they will generate answers that are simply wrong. And uh, that that is a, a potential hazard, but that's due to the fuzzy nature of how they're exploring and probing the language models that they're they're working with. So, as any new technology, and as you pointed out, we're we're dealing here with a double-edged sword. There's no doubt that there will be tremendous benefits that come from AI. We will be able to have an intelligent system that can integrate far more data than a human being ever could. Our working memories can only hand about, handle about seven items. So at any time that you're working on anything, you're, if you're an average human being, you can maintain about seven items in your working memory, and everything else has to be excluded. Uh, and AI and that declines with age, no doubt, because those neurons go <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, as, as we deal with these things, though, they, they can deal literally with millions, billions, trillions of bits of information to be integrated. And, and, and this is how they can be used, for example, to identify a specific face in a high-resolution photograph that contains 100,000 people. Uh, so, and they can do it in, in, in a matter less than a second. 
So uh, other interesting things about their capabilities outside of medicine is uh, they can read human emotions and facial expressions and tones of voice better than humans can. So uh, in tests where humans were asked to detect a lie, the machines, by listening and looking, were actually far better uh, at detecting lies than human experts. Uh, also, gauging emotions, looking at facial expressions, tone of voice. Again, it's uh, those types of things. The AIs were better at detecting emotions. So let's say you were going to be playing poker against a machine. Now, if you would take most, you know, top level poker players, they understand the odds and the machine would understand the odds too. With a classical poker play, playing computer, like one you might have in a, a game on that comes with a PC, uh, you could probably play a, pr- a pretty good game, you know, it, and if, if it's good, it will beat you most of the time because it's better at statistics than you are. Uh, but if you were to take one of these advanced AIs that can interpret human emotions and read expressions, they would very quickly de- detect the tells that the professional uh, poker players are trying to hide. And they, they would very quickly dominate the field. And so uh, they're going to have applications, you know, in in law enforcement, probably in business. I, I can foresee a time when uh, business meetings would want to have an AI present to uh, evaluate the, the conversation and the emotions in the room. Uh, and obviously this kind of thing could be very helpful in, in medicine, uh, and in psychiatry, in, in forensic medicine as well. Uh, so we can kind of see where, where this is going. Now, uh, Elon Musk and, uh, who everybody knows and Sam Altman, who was the, uh, chief executive of a company called OpenAI, who developed ChatGPT, which is one of the uh, conversational AIs you can access today from your computer. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton, who was a, a, a pioneer of AI that worked at Google and, and developed a lot of their uh, AI programs, uh, all signed on to a uh, warning recently. They're uh, three of more than 500 signatories uh, for, from a statement that came out from the Center for AI Safety. Uh, just 23 words. They, they, they signed the following. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. So Translate that for me, please, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's uh, tw- 23 words. You know, they, they summarize their concerns. That, so, run back, you know, par- par- can you paraphrase that? What that? Okay. Well, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI, you know, we, we have to do something to watch out because this, this stuff is posing a risk of extinction for human beings. Really? So, let's, mitigating- let's slow that down and talk about how that, it can expand that. Um, oh, what would happen oh, through war or how would that go about all the above? Oh, there are lots of different scenarios that that could evolve from. Uh there's a philosopher named Nick Bostrom who uh, wrote an excellent book called Superintelligence that explores a variety of pathways to superintelligence. And one of them was AI. Uh, and uh, 
he gives the example of the paperclip factory. And this is kind of the classic one now that people bring up. Uh, but say you have an AI and uh, you, you manufacture paperclips and you want your factory to make the best paperclips and more of them than your competition. So you put your AI to work in the factory and, and you give it uh, simple instructions, you know, optimize the production of paperclips. That's so if, if this AI has a morality, if it has a moral code, its central moral code is I got to optimize the production of paperclips. So, and you may even put a limit on it, say op- optimize the production of paperclips and stop after you make, you know, a uh, hundred million. Well, this AI then would, you know, start out looking for, you know, where can I efficiently source the metals for these paper clips? You know, what is the machinery like in my plant? Is there anything there that I can make more efficient, et cetera? And it may cycle through and produce the hundred million paper clips. But then it's, it may think to itself, well, you know, it is possible that one of those sensors out there that's counting the paper clips is in error. I might not have really had this factory make a hundred million paper clips. So I need to continue making paper clips. So it would then continue to seek materials, et cetera, to make paper clips. Well, there may be shortages in the supply that it needs. So then it may decide that, well, I, I need to enter the stock market and uh, start making purchases and sales to optimize the availability of the raw materials that I need to make paper clips. And this, uh, it proceeds to do so until eventually it corners the market on everything that's involved. And over time, because these things are immortal, it uh, proceeds to use up all the metal on the surface of the planet. Uh, it may have to start its own space program to mine the asteroids. Uh, but anything that gets in the way of its production of paper clips is a threat to its primary mission and its whole purpose for existing. You know, so if, if somebody comes along and says, well, I need that metal for my car, it after a while may turn around and say, I, I need the metals that are in, involved in your body to, to make so I can continue to make paper clips. I need that iron that's in your blood more than you do. You know, so uh, that's that's a, 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 the example that uh, Nick Bostrom uses in, in as, as one of the potentials. You know, another one, say you give uh, you want, want to make them totally benign. You want to do everything you can to make the world safe from AI. So you, you make an instruction, uh, you know, your, your mission is to keep humanity safe and happy. Okay. And, uh, so the AI explores several different technologies, you know, and, and, and finally settles on the idea that the best way to keep humanity safe and happy is to capture all the humans, remove their brains from their bodies, put them in vats and maintain them alive while supplying them with opioids, you know. Uh, so, so the, the the point is that you, you you as as hard as you try, it's very possible that the AI is going to come up with a different interpretation of what you are uh, are asking it to do, and it, it's just doing what it can do based on on what what it knows and 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 what you've trained it on. Uh, Speaking of neural networks, here's an example. Uh, the military wanted a program to use neural networks to identify uh, heavy armament tanks uh, in aerial photographs. And so they took 
the, the, the way these things are, are, are programmed is, is called uh, supervised training. So what they did was they took a series of photographs that had tanks and uh, big guns and so forth in them. And then they uh, had another set of photographs that didn't have the tanks and the big guns in them. And they trained the AI to to recognize uh, the tanks or, or not. You know, are they there or aren't they? Was was the question, and uh, they the neural network the AI performed extremely well, given the photographs that it was was trained on. But then, when they tried to offer new photographs to it, uh, it didn't perform well at all. And it turned out that although the trainers thought they were training the AI on identifying the weaponry. It actually was identifying whether it was a sunny day or a cloudy day, because it turned out that all of the ones that contained the weaponry, those photos were taken on a sunny day, and all those that uh, didn't have the weapons were taken on a cloudy day. So you can't even be sure when you're training one of these things that it's getting what it is that you want that it trained on. So that, that's well, how do you stop it once you've done? Um... Once you set it in motion, I think this is what's on people's minds because can you put a, can you override any of the commands and as a human being or does it just blow you off and uh, in its pursuit of the, <laughs> huh? Yeah. Well, well, that that's why so many of these experts in the field are recommending that we proceed cautiously uh, with regard to these. You know, we, we need to, make sure that we have a way to turn them off if it, if it comes to that, you know, but way down the line, uh, that's even going to be a question whether it's going to be moral, because if, if we think these things have actually reached some level of self-consciousness, is it possible to turn them off with, without, you know, committing a moral infraction? Is that anything akin to murder? And when they reach a certain level, uh, should, should they have the vote? And, uh, are they even to be considered as individuals when they can merge together? Uh, if they can clone themselves a billion times, you know, uh, what, what are we going to do in, in that situation in a democracy? So we have a lot of important questions ahead of us, you know, on how, how we're going to, to deal with these things. But all, all this stuff, you know, is, is speculative at this time, but it's, you know, any, any caution, any prediction of risks uh, is speculative. And and it's it's based on on real concerns from the experts who really uh, understand these things. But at, at, at this level, uh, I think it's yeah, it's possible to turn them off if they get out of the way. It's possible to build sandboxes around them so they don't have uh, access to uh, things in the real world that they could actuate or manipulate. Uh, we can. Uh, keep them relatively isolated if necessary, but we have to keep in mind, you know, uh, that we really don't understand, uh, what, what they're thinking. Uh, and we really don't understand their ultimate, uh, motivations despite how carefully we can program them. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the, the, the warning or the dark side of them. But, uh, let, let me ask a couple, let me make a couple observations that have come out of my fertile mind. Uh, <laughs> one is <clears throat> let me uh it's not a digression but let me make a 
observation about this. I think we would all agree that the country is all caught up in this discussion. I'm not going to get into whether it's good or bad. It's dominating systemic racism. Compared to this discussion, it has no business even being discussed systemic racism because it is not even a problem or potential problem on the level at which this has the potential to be a problem. Having said that, the political structures that are being used to argue the systemic race issue can't are not constructed to handle this argument. Because the premise for the systemic racism conversations are structures that are not applicable. Constitution, uh, declaration. You you go through the whole history of the evolution of man creating documents to structure conversations. That occurs to me, and I, I invite you to contradict or expand or take a look at it. And what I said, um, we don't have, in other words, we don't have a way to think about these things. We don't have a way to discuss these things. And also, I suspect that um, the genie's out of the bottle. That's the other thing that concerns me. It's out of the bottle. And I, I I don't know what else we can do, how we can put it back. Some diabolical soul out there is going to figure out a way, a Putin or somebody like that, they exist is out there, to use this uh, in a negative way. Uh, and, in, and the other thing, Steve, and we've got a break coming up, we've got a model for this, do we not? COVID. Here we have a Wuhan lab. <clears throat> We had no way of handling that, I would suggest a lot of people think. And if it were done, as a lot of think people think, with evil intentions, it was darn successful, was it not? So when we get back from the break, I think we got a break coming up. I want to take it. Yeah, it was 926. Maybe you can think about that and comment on it. To me, there are two problems. We don't have a structure, a a social engineering structure to handle a problem. And we have a problem that is maybe analogous to what we could have in the COVID is is the issue. Um, Talking with Dr. Steve Reed, retired neurosurgeon, whose mind is functioning now on artificial intelligence, but has also, as a profession, worked on the human mind. And another avenue we haven't really explored with him is how many corollaries they are to the two ventures. I'm sure they cross-reference an awful lot. And that has given Steve a lot of preparation to think about the artificial intelligence. We're going to take a break here at the bottom of the hour for the weather. Fascinating conversation. And it's been presented in a pretty pedestrian way so we can understand it. I threw a couple of questions out there. I don't know whether they're any good or not. 
and I'll have uh, Steve talk about them when we get back. So we're going to take a break for the weather. We'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Professor Ward Scott here in the manly Warhog Man Cave with Ward's Weather, brought to you by Lewis Oil, a great supporter of ours. Fossil fuel Chevron stations don't avoid fossil fuel. I mean, come on, let's get with it. Well, anyway, we are in the middle of really a lot of heat, and it's going to get worse. Uh, Texas, for the past two weeks, uh, they claimed, um, uh, you know, multiple lives have been lost. They've set all sort of uh, records for the heat, and it's not dissipated at all. And I got to tell you that according to AccuWeather and some of the other weather apps we have here that we check the weather for you on, uh, it's coming our way. Uh, we're going to have high humidity. We're going to have, that's really what the misery index is. When they say heat index, it really means misery index. Those are combining heat and humidity. And I can't think of anything that's more uh, uncomfortable for us than that. It was so hot outside here, uh, the Warthog Command uh, Center yesterday that the air was actually blue. So um, 
It's um, it, it, that, 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 I guess that's that's heat. I don't know where that comes from, but that's maybe an AI question. So there is a heat wave, and it's uh, it's uh, well dug in, and it's headed our way all the way over to Florida. So uh, get ready for a hot. After all, I guess it is July. So govern yourself accordingly. We're talking with Dr. Steve Reed, retired neurosurgeon, uh, about artificial intelligence. And I threw a couple of questions or observations at him just before we went on the break and asked uh, him to speculate, I guess is how he's going to respond, uh, on how AI would handle the discussion, two discussions we have in our culture that are very controversial and uh, have impacted our society a lot. One is systemic racism, and the other is COVID. So, Steve, I don't know if that was helpful uh, or if you've had time to think about it over the break. Terrible. Let me dive into that. And I'd like to also use this as kind of a springboard to get us back into the AI and and medicine discussion. Yeah. Uh, But I I think we can do it by pointing out that your first question really is one of biases, uh, the question about the systemic racism. So the large language model AIs like ChatGPT, which stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer, uh, they, they, they work by mining the discussions, the data, the articles on the Internet. So they go out there and they explore the Internet and they look at connections between language. And if this question is asked, what kinds of words usually follow that to answer it? You know, uh, if if. Shakespeare were to write a, a play today about systemic racism, uh, how would it look? The AI could do that. Uh, the issue is that as you look at that data, it contains biases. And uh, if, if it's mining the data for news reports, for example, uh, in, in the last uh, five years, uh, there are a lot of opinions about systemic racism. There are a lot of news articles about systemic racism, television articles, etc. And so the AI forms an opinion about systemic racism. And it uh, it's a little bit like public opinion or propaganda. You know, if the lie is repeated often enough, it becomes the truth. The poor AI has no idea what's really going on out there. All it can do is deal with these these texts, the data that's there, and and, and what it's provided. So just as it didn't know uh, the difference between high-contrast shadows and artillery weapons, you know, it, it may not know the difference between uh, the positions on systemic racism, whether it exists or not, uh, and to what degree it might be a problem if it does, et cetera. So, uh, so that's, that's one thing is, is a bias in the data that it has access to. Another is a, a bias, uh, in its programmers. And, uh, if the humans that are monitoring the AI as it's learning something decides that, that they, they don't like where it's going or the conclusion that it's likely to derive, they, they can change the biases. They can adjust the dials. They can tune it so that it will consider some information more valuable or more credible 
than other information. So the AI itself then develops the biases of its programmers. So that gives the programmers an incredible amount of power going forwards. And, you know, we've kind of seen this kind of thing in operation with shadow banning on uh, the uh, different social media, et cetera. But I apologize for the phone ringing here. I'm sure my wife will get good here. Uh, here, let me, let me interrupt for a moment. We had that happen to the Ward Scott files. YouTube took us off because we violated their community standards, which are not defined, of course, and we couldn't uh, appeal. And basically, it was anything that questioned the narrative of the election. That's what the programmers had obviously set that up on. And the notorious accusation about Silicon Valley is that it's, it's incredibly liberal. And so the programmers, therefore, are writing programs that AI, if I follow your logic, would then search and come to no other conclusion than that which is a representation of the biases of the programmers. You're exactly you're you're right on with that. That's that's the the fundamental core of, of the, the the issue for this particular <clears throat> risk with AI. Now, in in medicine, obviously, there's uh. It, you have an AI that's serving as a consultant uh, or a uh, a diagnostician uh, or a, a, a recommender of, uh, of treatment. Uh, if there are intentional biases that can get into that system, uh, it could clearly uh, affect the patient's health and uh, the economy. So let's say that the AI uh, developer receives a uh, a big grant from Pfizer. Uh, to develop their, their AI to evaluate, uh, di- diagnose, you know, and advise treatment. Uh, well, uh, it's certainly possible that biases might find their way in, into a system like that that could be beneficial to Pfizer or any other analogous company that might provide, you know, funding for, for such, uh, grants. So, so biases, uh, in the development of the systems are risks. Uh, Moving on with some of the, the, the other issues as they might relate to, to medicine, uh, are as far as these things go, they're black boxes. Many times we don't know how they come to the conclusions they come to and, and they don't either because basically what they're doing is just optimizing a lot of functions or a lot of little variables that are getting tweaked inside and they, they come up with a solution that's entirely incomprehensible to a human being. But it works. So uh, that's a risk. We don't know uh, how they're doing what they're doing sometimes. Uh, they can be hacked and manipulated by outsiders. It, anything that's uh, uh, got a, a, a port to the Internet is potentially at risk. And we can see that because these things are so effective, because they are so efficient, they're going to find their way quickly into uh, optimizing power plants uh, you know, controlling infrastructure, you know, changing the timing on the traffic lights to promote the, the flow of, of traffic, uh, counting the votes. There, there, there are all kinds of things that they're going to be involved with, and they, they are potentially at risk for malicious hacking. Uh, and if that includes your electronic health record that's integrated with the AI or the advice that's being given to your personalized health care, you know, through an AI, that you could potentially be targeted as an individual by a bad actor, you know. Well, uh, what I see going on here, 
and we've discussed this uh, uh, on other shows with other guests who are in the medical world. I know you and I have discussed it. And there's an article right now uh, in Wall Street Journal about how difficult it is to know why the insurance company denies the exam. Okay, let's take that issue. Uh, If we are going to make that decision by our AI, we're going to program it to the benefit of the insurance company. Well, not the patient. And that's the problem right now. Huge in that you go and you say, well, gee, I need a CAT scan. The first question I'll ask you is we need to see your insurance. And I've seen this, you know this, I'm not telling you anything. So they take a look at the insurance and patient A, for him to get the test, it's going to cost him a grand out of his pocket because of his insurance. Patient B comes up there, doesn't cost him anything because of their insurance or less or whatever. Um, Patient A doesn't know why in the heck it did that, right? And patient B doesn't know why in the heck it did, except he's happy, obviously. This is a real problem in medicine because I've had doctors say, oh, we perform the test, but your insurance won't pay for it. Yeah, that, that, that is a, a real problem. It's turned the insurance companies uh, into the gatekeepers for health care. Uh, health care is a scarce resource. Historically, the, the best allocation of scarce resources has been managed by the free market. But we don't have a free market in medicine anymore. So uh, that function of the market's not available to healthcare anymore, which is sad uh, because uh, the use of local information is the best. You know, in, in other words, you know, you're the guy who knows the best about your financial circumstances. You know, you know the the doctors in your community, and you know your needs and 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 uh, what you can afford. So your decision for your healthcare should be yours, and. The other side of that coin is, you know, those doctors and healthcare providers want to compete for 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 your dollars, and so they're going to tweak their their practices to optimize that uh, for their businesses. As soon as you put in price setting, you know, from an external authority, all that goes out the window. So anyway, uh, back back to the AI aspects of it, it it's kind of like uh, radar guns and radar detectors. Okay, the insurance companies have their AIs. And they're using them to analyze your codes and everything, how the doctors are billing or whatever. They're looking for discrepancies. They're looking for outliers. Is somebody trying to cheat us, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there are AI programs now that are becoming available for doctors that actually can probe the insurance companies and say, well, let's try submitting this code this time and see whether we get paid or not. You know, maybe we can reverse engineer their algorithm to try to determine, optimize our, our, our returns. And, and, and so, uh, that's a kind of a, a level of competition now going on where the AIs are competing against each other. Uh, and ultimately, you know, uh, there may be winners and losers in that situation. And, uh, but this scales up, you know, even though we know that there's a potential, uh, extinction level event for humanity, you know, at the hands of these AIs, uh, we have to continue to develop them. Uh, because our opponents are developing them. 
It's it's almost like the uh, the nuclear arms race. There's an AI arms race going on. Uh, so uh, if, if we if we don't continue to develop them, you know, we are potentially at the risk of subjugation of, of those who do. Uh, but uh, anyway, I'd like to continue with uh, steering it back to the medicine again. Oh yeah, sure. I'm following you. I didn't mean to distract you. Okay. Um, I was just trying to figure out. Um, wandering around in the subject is all I can say I was doing. So, but yeah, we are focusing on how it influences medicine. So let's get back to that. Okay. So, uh, I, I have a couple more things I was going over with kind of the negatives of it, but I want to switch to the positives shortly, but there are a couple more negatives that are coming up. Uh, one is job loss. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, occupations that are in, uh, health that could easily be replaced by AI. That's going to be an issue. And the, the other is the dumbing down of physicians. If you look at interesting, if you look at the effects that technology have had on, uh, a lot of fields, you know, I imagine that you and I are not as good at, a, as arithmetic, at arithmetic as we used to be because we have calculators. Mm-hmm. A lot of kids these days can't read or write cursive because they, they use keyboards and, with the incredible information explosion in medicine, uh, the path of least resistance is going to be, well, let me ask the AI. Let it, I don't know what the best case is in this scenario. Let me talk to the AI, see what it recommends. And so I, I, I think we're coming to a time when doctors used to have to have a tremendous amount of information in their own brains to process and have immediate access to. Uh, but we're reaching a time when that may not work because there's so much information that we may just need to rely more on the AI and accept the risks of biases and and errors and so forth. I can foresee a time coming very quickly where uh, the AI will offer suggestions or guidelines. And if they are not followed, that that could lead to medical liability lawsuits. Uh, if if the, the human being has a difference of opinion with the AI and he, he, he or she proceeds based on their own best efforts against the AI's recommendations, that may be uh, a medical liability issue. So those, I think, are the, the, the main negatives that we've discussed that relate to AI and medicine. But I'd like to move to some of the positives because there really are some incredible positives as well. The, the first is accuracy. These things are incredibly accurate. Uh, the AIs that have been trained to read chest X-rays uh, can outperform a human radiologist. They can read ten chest uh, the, the off-the-shelf ones, the, the ones you buy that have a CE on them that are available on the market now. There are about forty different ones. Uh, those can read chest X-rays uh, ten times as fast as a human, and the supercomputers that are programmed to read chest x-rays can read hundreds of them in a second. Hundreds of chest x-rays in a, in a second uh, with a diagnostic accuracy comparable to a, a human radiologist. Uh, interpretation of uh, retinograms that ophthalmologists use to, to look uh, for diabetic retinopathy. Uh, AIs are better than ophthalmologists at detecting diabetic retinopathy. So uh, that's an issue. 
personalized treatment. It's everybody's got their unique body. They've got their unique genetics. They've got their unique history of their injuries and their medication profiles and things. So what's good for patient A may not be good for patient B. The AI can create personalized treatment strategies based on uh, that kind of information uh, available to the patient. So it's very possible that having AI will allow you to get much better treatment focused on you, which is sort of a counterbalance to this whole thing that we have with, okay, we've checked the box for this diagnosis. We've checked the box for that diagnosis. We're only going to authorize this medicine. You know, if you want something else too bad, you know, if, if the AI is behind you now saying, oh, he really needs that medicine rather than this one, maybe the insurance companies will pay attention. You know, so personalized medicine is, is another issue. Uh, efficiency. Uh, we've got all kinds of inefficiencies built into the system now as anybody who's tried to get uh, a procedure approved or an unusual medication approved or even anybody who's had to wait in line a long time to get to see their doctor. Uh, with AIs entering the field and capable of offering uh, diagnostic and, and treatment recommendations, uh, we may be able to leverage the available human medical staff, uh, which is unfortunately under great stress right now, uh, to treat more patients along along the course. Uh, we foresee a, a decrease in, in physicians uh, coming, uh, tremendous physician shortages on the horizon, and perhaps the AIs will ha- offer some mitigation uh, to that. And then finally, uh, reduction of costs. Uh, the big computers, the uh, programming, et cetera, is something that uh, is, are soon going to take over in their own development, their own optimization, their own programming. And uh, the efficiencies that can be re- introduced then can translate into reduced costs uh, throughout the delivery of medicine overall. So exactly as you said at the beginning, we have a two-faced coin here. Uh, there's a double-edged sword. There are tremendous advantages that these things can bring to life. They are definitely going to change things. There are serious potential risks that actually extend all the way to the extinction of humanity. Uh, and no matter what happens, it's going to be an interesting ride. <laughs> Dogman, Dr. Steve Reed here, retired neurosurgeon. Looking at the chat here for some questions, Steve. Um, could... To what extent, I'm going to rephrase the question here from one of our listeners, to what extent could AI eventually replace doctors? That's a very good question. I think it's not going to be long until they can replace the kind of doctors that you call for something routine. At this point in time, uh, they are not particularly good at very complicated, non-repetitious manipulations of things in the real world. So although we have robotics in surgery, it's probably going to be a few decades until we see, you know, skilled robotic surgeons that are autonomous. Uh, So I I think in the, the fields that involve primarily integrating information and offering treatments like neurology uh, the, the non-invasive kinds of uh, medical specialties, psychiatry, uh, those kinds of things that don't involve a lot of hand-on manipulation of the human bodies and tissues. I, th- I think those are r- right around the corner. 
we're going to see that uh, we're going to see that in the next uh, five years. Uh, as far as the ones that do involve the uh, the fine motor mo- motions, et cetera, that, that's a little ways off, but not too far off. So, yes, I, I think we're going to be seeing replacement of doctors uh, probably uh, within the next 25 years. Interesting. Um, but still, the skilled hand of the surgeon, someone like you, is pretty difficult to replace uh, uh, with a machine. Because once you get in there, you can encounter the unexpected, correct? And then you have to deal with it. There's a lot of creativity involved. And uh, as the old saying goes, uh, good judgment uh, comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. (laughs) So there's there's a a lot to be said for for the the, the kinds of information that the doctor carries around in his his own neurons because uh, there are really very outlying kinds of uh, events that happen in medicine that uh, the best AI uh, mining the biggest database probably isn't going to come across. And if it does, it may not be able to make the uh, analogy to to something else that is right in front of it at that time. But that's one of the things that the human brain can do. uh, And and, and that's something that's going to be hard to duplicate for the AI. We already run into the world of hospitalists, you know, uh, replacing your doctor who's been with you all your life, so to speak. I don't think the doctors make visits to the hospital anymore the way they once did. Correct me if I'm wrong. The hospitalists are doing this and they're going to a computer and looking at what the previous hospitalist put in there and reading it. And this goes on depending upon your lengthy stay, (laughs) it's strung together by a series of guys who don't know you. Now, from the patient's point of view, there has to be the human element. You'd like to have a guy who, and this is a debate I used to have with people like you in your profession. Well, he's not that good a doctor, but he sure likes his patients and, you know, the patients like him. And what's what's the merit of that, you know? as opposed to having a very, very good doctor who's a cold kettle of fish and nobody wants to go see, but can, you know, whatever. Have you not heard that? I've heard that quite a bit from people. Well, I sure like Dr. Jones, you know. Yeah, but Dr. Smith is actually better. Well, I can't stand. And we actually have, and you know this, out on the internet right now, we can go look up the physician and see the patient rate them. And the rating is not based on anything, I don't think, to any depth. What's your comments on that? Well, the, the patient ratings, usually if everything goes well, the patient leaves the office and they're happy and you, you fade into the mists of memory. You know, <laughs> if, if things don't go well, the patient leaves the office angry, uh, then they, they they tend to seethe. What can I do to get back at that doctor? And then, then you get the bad rating on online. So there's a just just because of human nature, there's going to be a negative bias to the ratings online. As far as the the hospitalists, uh, it's interesting that uh, the the older generations uh, that such as the ones you and I may be approaching in a few years, uh, uh-huh. 
have totally different expectations as to what what their their healthcare is going to be like. We we want Marcus Welby. We want Doctor Kildick. We we want that doctor that's going to be our doctor. Yeah. And, uh, but but the, the the younger generations that are coming up don't have those expectations. So I I think that the uh, adoption of the hospitalist system is, is just fine with them. Uh, and one of the things the AIs may do is pr- present a uh, an avatar or a persona for for a hospitalist. You know that that might be a good field for the AI to. To, to enter, you know, so no matter where you go, you might be in a hospital in, in a different country. You've got your hospitalist doctor that's yours. You recognize him because you see him on the screen and he looked just like he did when you were back in Gainesville. You know? I got you. Got one more t- question time here. Uh, is AI going to help us? This is a uh, question. Find cures for cancer and um, things of that nature, do you think? Undoubtedly. Uh, AIs can, uh, we mentioned the human capacity for seven items in working memory at a time and that the AIs can deal with so much more. They can find uh, pattern matches between genetic variations, you know, uh, with millions and millions of different combinations of, of DNA and, and RNA and so forth. They, they can they can look for mutations and proteins and things. They can make predictions for how proteins are going to fold uh, that allow for development specific uh, new treatment therapies, uh, the, the, the fact that they can uh, spot these patterns and integrate so much information undoubtedly will lead to uh, improvements in the treatment of cancer. Wow. Well, we're just about out of time, Steve. We've been talking with Dr. Steve Reed, retired neurosurgeon who's been on the show before. Um, maybe we can work out a deal to have Steve visit us once a month or so, talk about whatever he's thinking about, because uh, medicine is on everyone's mind. And uh, sooner or later, you'll be encountering it. If you've been fortunate enough not to need much of it now, why, you know, thank your lucky stars. And if you do need some help, I think it's a human instinct to want to get to it and get the best they can get. And there's a lot of issues that are making it more complicated. Uh, the corporate takeover of, of employees of hospitals is something we've discussed. Um, the insurance, the fact that there's no real competitive markets anymore. Uh, no doubt that's affected it. And um, so we'll we'll think of some more subjects as we go along here. And if you have any, always feel free to contact the Ward Scott Files and we'll take a look at them. Steve, thanks. Great talking to you. Thank you, uh, Ward. Have a great day. And um, hope everybody has a great weekend. Warthog Command Center out.